All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Party of the People. On this episode, we have Beto O'Rourke, who is a current congressman representing the 16th District in Texas, and who is running to be the newest senator from Texas. Something that I thought was guaranteed but was driven home to me in November 2016 that, that nothing's guaranteed, that, that we could lose all of this within an election cycle, and that the things that we care about, from healthcare to jobs to immigration to, to so many other things, or, or just the institutions that, that we depend on. This, this idea that we can choose our own government and our own representatives and our own leaders. All of that right now is called into question, not just by this administration, but by the complicity of those who aid and abet its work. We also have the news with me, Brittany Clinton. Sam, as usual. Before we jump in, I'll just say a message about asking for help is that sometimes people don't ask for help because they think that they're losing something. They think that they're giving up their power. They think that it's a sign of weakness. Is that it's really a sign of self-awareness to know the things that you're really strong at and the things that are growth areas. When we ask for help or assistance, we're often asking for people to help supplement in the areas where we need to grow. And the growth just isn't happening right now. And that's not a bad thing. I've been working on a project recently, and I'm really good at a part of it, and I'm just not as strong as somebody else on another part of it. And I need him to come and just like push and make it better, and I'm learning from seeing him in his gift, and he's learning from seeing me do the things that I'm really strong at. And too often, people will suffer in silence and not ask for help because they think it's a sign that they are weak. But really, it takes a lot of self-awareness to know a healthy way to ask for help. And we got to be mindful not to confuse asking for help with unloading your work on other people or just not doing things that you don't want to do simply because you don't want to do them. That we ask for help when we're trying to supplement gaps in our own skills or we just don't have the capacity at the moment and we know other people can help us out and do it better. That's it. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Did y'all see that news, that not news? I'm not, I'm not going to say fake news because that's too much these days, but the not news around the NRA... <laughs> losing money that they're having like the worst financial moment of their history or something like that's what they're telling people i saw that no i saw that you've been lied to so what it is is that it's a hoodwinked bamboozled run amok led astray all of that it's a way to mobilize the base so they are saying it so that the base will get hyped up will actually start giving them more money 
and people will think that they're politically weaker, but it's not true. They are out here playing the long game. It was, yeah, they, they played us. They played us all the way to the left, um, or to the right, as it were. Wow. Bunch. Yep, yep. I will say that when we did think it was real news, um, and not not news, as you have <laughs> so eloquently stated, DeRay, Steve Kerr, the uh, coach of the Golden State Warriors, had a really great comeback and said, don't send any money, thoughts and prayers will do. And, you know, when we thought it was... When we thought it was the truth, it was a really great response. Plus, I'm sure the Russians are going to send them money what? anyway. <laughs> As a side note on, you know, the positive tip, shout out to LeBron James for putting his money where his mouth is, educating young people in Akron, Ohio. The school sounds incredible. I'm excited to see what the educators and students and families and community does with that. I'm hoping that everybody decides to copy off of that. When you consider the fact that LeBron James has been in the national spotlight since he was 12, 13 years old, when you consider the fact that he was the most hyped up high school basketball prospect in the history of the game, when you consider the fact that he then went on and exceeded every single expectation that was had of him, that he brought his family and friends along with him, that he had made it to eight straight finals, that he has this, these three beautiful kids, this beautiful family, this wonderful yeah. relationship... And, and in this regard, that he demonstrates a thoughtfulness around issues of justice that, that is in a, a long tradition of, of other really thoughtful activist athletes mm-hmm. who, who are clear about the, the potential of their platform and the power of their platform. And then really in a sort of post-Trayvon era, he has continued to demonstrate and, and directly engage with issues of racial injustice, even when it might not necessarily be good for his uh, endorsements or when it might not be a good idea for, for the money that he's making and, and the potential sponsorships. But he, he I think he was also always very clear that uh, this is something that he wanted to do. And, and I think that, that it's important to acknowledge that he, he didn't have to make that choice, but, but he did and that he continues to. I also think that LeBron is the greatest basketball player of all time. MJ, you got great shoes, but LeBron is the best. For me, he takes that greatest of all time, um, that GOAT title, precisely because he hasn't chosen silence in order to be successful. Um, and then, in fact, he has absolutely stood up in who he is, what he believes. Um, and like I said, not only put his money where his mouth is, but at considerable risk to his career, endorsement deals, et cetera, has decided to stand on on the side of justice and righteousness um, more and more in his career. And so, yeah, that for me puts him puts him right on the top. And I'm not ashamed to say so, even if he is going to the Lakers. Are you a Laker hater? <laughs> I'm not a Laker hater. I'm just saying, like, you know, lots of people hate the Lakers. And so I'm just saying... <laughs> But you're saying you're not one of them. I'm saying no matter where he is, I respect LeBron. That's all I'm saying. Please do not send me any Laker tweets. I'm I'm cool. I really don't have a favorite team. I grew up in St. Louis. The the only thing that I'd add is there's a long legacy of athletes committing to public education. There have been a lot of NBA players who've opened up schools and done incredible things. I think that LeBron is like highlighting the importance of that and adding on to some of the school models that we've seen be successful in the past. I want us to make sure that we are mindful of the way we report on the school and talk about like the school type and what it means and and think about like what those lessons are that we hopefully will learn from this school and how they can be replicated uh, as we think about like the future public education and the commitments that we need to make as a society to make sure all kids have the resources they deserve to succeed. So following that piece of news, I have a piece of good news as well. Uh, So on Friday, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia 
affirmed its prior ruling that the Department of Homeland Security violated the Administrative Procedure Act by rescinding DACA without sufficient explanation. So in April, so this comes on the heels of a decision in April uh, that essentially the administration rescinded or canceled DACA without sufficient uh, explanation for why they claimed it was unlawful. Uh, and so the court gave them 90 days to come up with an actual reason for canceling DACA that made sense. And of course, they didn't come up with a reason that made sense because there isn't a reason that makes sense for canceling DACA. And so now uh, the court has reaffirmed its ruling and rescinded the decision to rescind the memorandum, which means it restores the DACA program. So this is great news. So what's also interesting about this is that it was the NAACP, along with two of the nation's largest labor unions, uh, the American Federation of Teachers and the United Commercial Food Workers, that uh, brought this case to court. They were then joined uh, later by Princeton University and Microsoft that filed a, a similar case uh, and joined to the NAACP case. But you know what's fascinating is that you know, we know the NAACP has been around for a very long time, uh, the nation's uh, oldest and original civil rights organization, and it's uh, incredible to see that they're continuing to do the work and uh, you know, in partnership with a number of incredible groups have won uh, in this major case to restore DACA. You know, I think um, this ruling is momentous and important for a whole host of reasons, um, but two come to mind in particular. One, in my full-time job, I have the distinct honor of working with and helping to support behind the scenes a number of documented teachers who are committed to supporting students in the classroom and working with a number of teachers who are documented but who support undocumented students and families every single day. And this has been nothing short of hell for for so many of them, um, never knowing if uh, a, a trip to school or the grocery store or to see their family member could be a moment of detainment, a moment of arrest, a moment of deportation, a moment of family separation, um, a moment that can forever alter the trajectory of their lives. And living with that kind of uncertainty is something um, that I can't even fathom in a lot of ways. And many of us have the privilege to not have to to not have to operate that way. Um, and so to have some clarity um, from this judge, even though there is still so much up in the air, is incredibly important. And I think it's important that we continue to recognize and support all of the folks um, in the immigrant community, the undocumented community, the documented community who every single day are relentlessly pursuing excellence and a thriving life for themselves and their families, despite what is happening in this country, despite the attack that they're under, and despite the level of uncertainty that they are constantly facing. The other important thing here, especially Sam, as you talk about the coalition of people who came together on this, is that we recognize that any justice issue requires all of our attention and all of our efforts. Uh, it is easy to say that immigration is just a Latinx issue or that immigration is just an issue for certain people. And we know that that's very, very simply not true. Uh, and when we see um, an organization that has been committed to the rights of black Americans work together with two labor unions, an institution of higher education and a, a technology corporation, um, we we see the kind of coalition building that I think is possible and that should inspire all of us to recognize just because it doesn't affect me doesn't mean that I shouldn't care. You know, Dr. King always said a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, and we need to recognize our role in creating justice for immigrants in this country, whether or not we ourselves come from that tradition. 
And we have to be clear, immigrants are coming to this country from around the world. They are coming from Spanish-speaking countries. They are coming from the Caribbean. They are coming from Africa. They are coming from all parts of Asia. They are coming from all around the world. Um, and they deserve our support, our welcome, um, in keeping in line with the ideals of this country. So what's important to remember is that DACA is in place because we, for the past 17 years, uh, have been unable to find a federal legislative solution to help young people who came to this country um, as undocumented immigrants. And and it's important to remember that this is, has been, as I said, in, in the conversation for the past 16 or 17 years. In 2001 was when there was first a national conversation around what you do with um, undocumented young people who came here as children. And, and it's important to remember also that in 2010, there was a huge DREAM Act vote. And and I went back and, and did some research, and I forgot that the DREAM Act would have passed if Democrats, if every Democrat had voted for it. So there were five Democrats who voted against the legislation, and the vote failed in the Senate by five votes. So it passed in the House, and it failed in the Senate by five votes. And Kay Hagan of North Carolina, Mark Pryor of Arkansas, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, and both Montana Democrats at the time, John Tester and Max Baucus, all voted against the bill. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced that he would have voted against the DREAM Act, um, but he was not there for the vote, so it would have been six. But but like, it also represents a very different political moment, right? Because I, I think we're in a moment where the conversation, in many ways, unfortunately, around immigration has become increasingly polarized, and, and the base is so uh, committed, rightfully so, the progressive base is so committed to ensuring that we we fight for these young people in a way that didn't represent the consensus of the Democratic Party in 2010. And I think a lot of these Democrats were fearful of their reelection prospects in 2012 and so voted against it because they were in these sort of swing states or red states. Uh, but again, it's, I think it's important to remember that this is not just historically, it has not just been Republicans who have uh, prevented this legislation from moving forward in that. And that if five Democrats in that moment had had the political courage um, to vote for something, even though it, it may have resulted in uh, a more difficult reelection cycle, I, I think I think I think often of what it means for people to not vote for something simply because it means they won't it won't get them reelected, and then I have these moments where I'm kind of like, well, what what are you there for, if not to make the hard choices, um, and to consider that if, if again if these five Democrats had voted for this bill millions and millions of people would have been given a pathway to citizenship and and it's really hard to to stomach that at this point this is the game that they play sometimes that they will offer no rationale they stop a program and because the public conversation was that daca was over there are likely people who didn't file their renewal paperwork who didn't apply who didn't do some of the like normal compliance things they would have needed to do like if daca hadn't had any interruption in practice or in theory or in the conversation. And the challenge is that e even if DACA is completely reinstated from this judge's decision after the 90-day window, where the Trump administration can uh, offer a new rationale, is that there will likely be some people who are caught up in it because they didn't they didn't submit their paperwork or they didn't do some some small thing because they thought the program had ended fully. And like we have to be mindful of keeping these fights going 
uh, in the courts and wherever we can. And we need to make sure that people continue interacting with the process so that they can't come back and be like, well, you know, DACA's back, but that person missed that deadline. And we know the person probably missed a deadline because they thought the program had ended, but really the program's back on. And then they'll try and deport people or do something that way. The third thing I'll say is remembering that DACA is not the same thing as comprehensive immigration reform, though it should be a part of it, right? So we should figure out how to, we need to have a broader conversation about comprehensive, comprehensive immigration reform. Like Clint said, that creates pathways of citizenship, that deals with all the complicated questions, not let people get off the hook with supporting DACA and then punting on an overall package that is really a comprehensive package. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. We have talked previously about the ways in which conversations on social welfare and government support are deeply racialized and gendered. Uh, And there is a new study that actually continues to prove this point and extend it further. The study shows that essentially white Americans are supportive of government programs that provide social welfare as long as the beneficiaries are perceived to be white. Um, So first of all, just a reminder, white people have always experienced welfare in this country. Uh, When you think about the genocide that American Indians and Native Americans, sorry, let me say this, uh, considering the genocide that indigenous people in this land experienced, their land uh, that rightfully belonged to them was given away as quote unquote free um, to white people as they settled across this country. Um, This is where we get the idea of Sooners from. Um, That free land uh, is that that supposedly free land is a form of social welfare. Um, Using the free labor of enslaved people is another form of social welfare by which and through which many people built um, the capital um, and the wealth that their families and companies have experienced for generations. Uh, And this country has an entire economy developed on that. Um, We know that everything from the 19th century Homestead Act all the way to FHA loans and GI bills were either technically or culturally limited mostly to white people. Today, there are ways in which white people are still overrepresented in Uh, receiving social welfare, things like the capital gains tax and other tax credits, mortgage interest deductions, etc. And so we just have to be very clear that white people have always experienced welfare and always benefited from social welfare, despite the common rhetoric. That said, when white people are under the impression that their racial hierarchy is being threatened, they then move to a place where they're actually willing to cut government programs if they are perceived to benefit black people or people of color. So here is what the study says specifically. In our final study, the researcher said, we found that information threatening the white economic advantage resulted in increased opposition to welfare programs when whites perceived those programs to primarily benefit minorities, but did not affect support for programs portrayed as benefiting whites. These findings implicate racial status threats as a causal factor shaping whites' opposition to welfare. So again, money is racialized. We have to constantly be paying attention to the color and the gender of money, who gets 
access to it and who doesn't. The article goes on to talk about a number of perceived threats and the ways in which people respond to those. It's in salon.com. I highly suggest reading it. But I wanted to bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, this 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 study helps to solidify what a lot of people have been saying for a very long time. And two, especially as we look ahead to who we're going to vote for in the midterms, you know, there's an election coming up in St. Louis in my hometown and a couple of actually on the day that this will air. Um, and as we look ahead to 2020, we have to make sure that our candidates do not divorce race from class. So I'm glad you brought this study uh, to the conversation, Brittany, because I remember when I was studying political science, uh, at Stanford and learning about some of the debates in the political science field. Uh, one of the sort of major quote unquote debates uh, that has been going on for decades now is this idea about how do you measure racism. Um, and for decades, uh, political scientists, many of them have used uh, what they call a racial resentment uh, survey battery. So a set of survey questions that, that purports to measure racial resentment. So the questions would essentially ask folks to respond to the extent that they agree with the following statements. So there were statements like, most blacks who receive money from welfare programs could get along without, without it if they tried, or Irish, Italians, Jewish, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without any special favors. So the idea was the extent that uh, a survey respondent would agree with those statements, uh, they would get a higher score of racial resentment. And, you know, this is a uh, methodology that has been used by a number of academics and professors, uh, many of whom are people of color, uh, at, to provide evidence that racism was indeed very widespread uh, in our politics uh, and our political attitudes. And then you had uh, sort of another side of this debate, which were predominantly white male professors who said, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Uh, they're not, those questions don't actually measure racism. Uh, the people who said that black people sh you know, should just get along fine and try harder and not get any assistance from the federal government, they were saying that because they are what they call, quote unquote, principled conservatives. And principled conservatives believe that the government should be a limited federal government and shouldn't be providing assistance or handouts to anyone. And that's not racist because they believe the same thing about giving uh, assistance to white folks as they do black people. Uh, so we can't call these people racist. And that debate has been happening for decades now. And now you're seeing new research coming out that is debunking that critique. Because what they're showing is that, in fact, uh, these same people who are saying, you know, black people should just try harder and not get any government assistance, uh, they're actually just, they're fine with giving government assistance to white people. So when they perceive the recipients of government assistance to be white, they are more likely to support uh, all kinds of programs, cash assistance and food stamps. I'm sure they're more likely to support you know, health care and you know, quality education and low interest home loans and, and all of these sort of uh, programs that are government funded to help people out. But when they perceive that person receiving it to be black, then they are less likely to support it. So what that means is that you actually have, the ideology is not conservatism. The ideology is white supremacy, an ideology that believes that white people deserve all of these things from the government, but black people uh, and other people of color are just, 
not deserving as white people. And so, you know, I hope that this helps to shift the conversations happening uh, in sort of the, the acad- in academia and political science um, to really wake people up that, that, yes, racism is widespread. It is one of the fundamental uh, political uh, ideologies and, and points uh, and structures our entire politics and view of the world, right, in this country. And so, you know, I'm glad that this got brought in, and I hope to see more studies like this uh, that could continue to provide evidence uh, of an issue that really needs to be confronted head on and resolved and shouldn't be sort of swept under the rug as just some uh, manifestation of principled conservatism. So this article that you're bringing up, Brittany, just so folks know, is uh, published in the academic journal Social Forces, and it's written uh, or co-authored by Rachel Wetz and Rob Willer. So the academic in me always just wants to Make sure that we're giving shout outs to the to the folks behind the empirical evidence. And part of what Wetson Willer talk about is the idea that the perception of demographic change in a country does not always match the reality uh, at which demographic change is actually occurring. And so they go back to even the rhetoric after Obama was elected about a post-racial America. You know, obviously, we look back at that now and, and recognize how naive it was for political commentators to suggest such a thing simply because we had uh, a, a black president, which didn't account for the sort of holistic web of oppression that continued to exist for black people in this country. Uh, but even the idea of a post-racial America, that rhetoric was operates as an ostensibly positive thing, right? To move beyond a world in which race is a central operating feature of uh, the American political system, uh, which it obviously is. But what they talk about is how white people would hear that language and it would exacerbate the idea that the country was moving beyond, beyond as the as the word suggests, becoming post-racial, and and the truth is that lots of folks want to live in a racialized world, whether they recognize it consciously or unconsciously. And an interesting example of this, uh, with regard to the difference between uh, the perception of the rate at which demographic change in this country is happening as compared to the actual rate at which demographic change is happening can be found in this new working paper that came out uh, last month from three Harvard economists, Alberto Alessina, Armando Miano, and Stephanie Stancheva. Uh, apologies if I, if I mispronounced those names. But what these economists did is they surveyed people in six countries, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, and the U.S., and found that native-born people in all six countries had ideas about immigration that were drastically out of step with the statistical realities and often much closer to negative stereotypes about immigrants that are propagated by right-wing media outlets. So, for instance, in the United States, native-born citizens drastically overestimated how many immigrants there are. Uh, Native-born Americans estimated that 36% of the population uh, is legal immigrants when the reality is that it's actually around 10%. And so this is reflective of the idea that people believe the country is, uh, because we, we there is this rhetoric around, the, you know, a majority minority country that is, is going to happen within the next few decades. And we've interrogated that idea um, several times on the podcast before. But, but when that rhetoric continues to be used and when people continue to see coverage of people who, who look so much different than them and what they and look different than what they consider to be a sort of quintessential Americanness. Um, it, it exacerbates what, what these folks find a sense of anxiety, even though the numbers of people 
uh, are not actually reflective of the real number of uh, immigrants in this case that that currently exist in the United States. All of which is to say it is both true that the country is changing and that white people think the country is changing faster than it actually is. The study and paper that Brittany is bringing is in, is based on research that was importantly started before the election in 2016. So they, in one of the interviews, they're asked, does, how does this relate to Trump? And they sort of talk about that they think that Trump just exacerbated the effects, but it was actually brewing uh, thinking from the the Obama election in forward, so I thought that was interesting. The other thing is that they, in an interview, one of the authors references another study called uh, "Poverty Reduction Programs Help Adults Lacking College Degrees the Most." What I thought was really interesting is that in that study, it shows that six in ten working age adults lack a bachelor's degree, but nearly nine of every ten adults whom government programs lift above the poverty line about. 12.2 million adults are people lacking a degree. And the reason that matters is that the most people without adults who are actually being helped out by government programs are white people. And this goes, this is just like another way of reinforcing points that we've made, but another finding from their report says people of all races and ethnic groups who lack a bachelor's degree receive significant help from the safety net. But on two significant metrics, the results for the white working age adults stand out. Among working-age adults without a college degree, 6.2 million whites are lifted above the poverty line by the safety net, more than any other racial or ethnic group. So it's just a reminder that the way that white people think about their own efficacy and their own success is often about self-mastery and self-making, that they have done it, that they were so skilled and so amazing, and don't attribute it to government assistance. And government assistance isn't a bad thing. The government exists so that we can think about our contributions as a society and how we help people grow who struggle. Uh, but again, like how people experience it in their personal life isn't actually matched to the data or reality. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Okay, now listen, y'all. I've seen lots of people swagged out lately. They've got their Beyonce swag. They're on the run to uh, tour stuff. But have y'all gotten your new Pod Save the People swag yet? That's the most important question. We've got a long sleeve tee, short sleeves in various colors and sizes. And with the new season two logo, if you got the merch in the first season and want to change it up or just add your collection, we got you covered. Trying to get that new new. Go check it out at store.crooked.com and we will take a selfie with you in it if you see us out and about. That's store.crooked.com and Brittany is giving away the selfies. DeRay, we are all giving away selfies. Get it together. <laughs> <laughs> Love a good selfie. So I'm glad Sam shared some good news. Uh, I think it's important to remember that even in this political moment that we continue to to struggle through, uh, that we remember that there are small victories that are happening in states, in cities, in communities across the country. Um, and so I also wanted to share some good news uh, on the criminal justice front, and that is that the share of people who return to state prison three years after being released, and the three-year metric is the most common measure uh, used to, to measure recidivism, uh, has dropped by nearly a quarter over a recently studied seven-year period. And this is according to analysis by the Pew Research Center on data provided by the Bureau of Justice Statistics on uh, prisoners released between 2005 and 2012. Uh, Longer-term recidivism also fell, and prisoners released in the states that were studied in 2010 were 13% less likely than the 2005 cohort to return to prison at least once 
by the end of their fifth year after being released. Uh, and this decrease in recidivism occurred alongside a long-term reduction in crime. And Pew's analysis of FBI crime statistics shows that the combined violent and national property crime rate has dropped by 26% uh, from 2005 to 2015. And, and we've spent some time talking about, the, again, the difference uh, of perception between how much crime people think is actually happening um, and how much crime is actually happening. And there's this is another piece of evidence that shows that even though people might feel that crime is increasing, um, it's actually decreasing across the country. Uh, and and with regard to the recidivism piece, uh, the researchers cite evidence-based reentry programs that have been enacted in recent years that have shown uh, been shown to improve outcomes for people who are released from prison um, and the implementation of these across different states and in different communities across the country. I think what's also important to remember about recidivism that people sometimes forget is that uh, People think that if you're released from prison and then you end up back in prison, that you, let's say you were in prison originally for committing a violent crime, a quote-unquote violent crime, and that if you end up back in prison, then intuitively, oftentimes, people think that you committed a violent crime again. But what people need to remember is that that's actually not often the case and that what happens is that you might have been originally in prison for you know XYZ crime, but the all you have to do to end up back in prison is violate your parole. And you can violate your parole through a range of, of different ways. You can miss your meeting with your parole officer. You can uh, test positive for marijuana. You can um, fall behind on, uh, you can find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and and you can be pulled over for a traffic ticket that then becomes, I mean, there's just so many different ways that, one can violate their parole that has nothing to do with actually committing a crime. Um, and so it's important to remember that when we think about recidivism, because I think sometimes people look at recidivism as a, as a metric to figure out if people are committing crimes again. And that is not, that's simply not necessarily the case. Recidivism does not show whether or not you're committing crimes. It shows specifically whether or not you violated parole. And those are two very different things. Um, but, but all this to say it's, this is really important because um, it shows that programs, uh, reentry programs that people are putting in place are working. Um, we talked about Bruce Western's book and, and folks like Bruce Western who are showing that some of the most important things you can do to make sure that somebody is prepared to reenter society after being incarcerated is to make sure that they have strong family connections, which means that you should um, keep phone the cost of phone calls extremely low, that you should make the opportunity for folks to visit their loved ones in prison as easy as possible, uh, and all of these different things that make sure that when people are released that they have a, a family network and a social network of folks who are able to support them. So this is all good news, and hopefully we will continue to implement programs uh, across states throughout the country that uh, make easier the transition back to society for folks who've been incarcerated um, rather than making their lives uh, increasingly difficult as, as our policies have, have often done in the past. I think it's about time between this um, and the the news of the court ruling in DACA that you shared, Sam, that we had some good news on the pod because um, it's important to celebrate victories um, um, especially the ones that are hard fought. It f can feel like they come out of nowhere. Uh, but to your point, Clint, this has been years and years and years of evidence-based work um, that has led to, to these results. And I'm hopeful that as we get data between 2012 and now, um, that we will see that decline in recidivism continue. Um, the only other thing I have to add, though, is 
um, is this. When you read this research from Pew, um, they attribute this decline to a number of uh, policy changes in state houses, um, as well as uh, funds that were given through the Second Chance Act, which is a federal bill that was passed in 2008. We've previously talked about research that has shown that local community-based organizations um, that have that are helping people with reentry and helping them reenter society um, uh, have also proven greatly effective in reducing recidivism. This is certainly not an either-or. We need every single tool we have at our disposal to win. And that means that everything from policy change to community-based programming that is well-funded and supported and resourced um, is helping to make this change here. But let it be said that it will require people who know what they're doing, uh, research that helps us actually do this the right way, um, and folks operating uh, with the very, very best intentions of our communities in mind in order to take on this criminal justice work. And I say that in the context of this meeting that happened um, at the White House this week. And I will say that as the daughter of not one, but two preachers, um, one being a pastor, I'm extremely disappointed in the, the conversation that happened there um, because it wasn't actually a dialogue or a conversation at all. Uh, we know that, that, that most of the people in the room were actually not allowed to offer any input, um, that they were told that cameras were not going to be there, and they were. Um, and yet, um, this administration now has the ability to undermine the efforts of people on the ground doing this important work to reform criminal justice, all because some pastors thought it would be a good idea to meet with somebody who has clearly shown time and time again that he does not have any real, he or his administration do not have real intentions um, in moving this ball forward in a substantive way as reflected by the opinions and the leadership of the people doing this work on the ground. So I'm really, really happy for this good news and I'm hoping that we continue to support the people that are actually making it happen. You know, it's interesting when people think about reentry programs and certainly when people talk about jobs, whether for uh, citizens returning or for like young people, I've seen so many cities do like the dro the job training stuff that really is not about putting people in jobs that are mobile, jobs that actually become careers, but just the idea that like people need jobs. And that actually isn't, a, that's not, that is the wrong answer. Like if we think about job training, we think about reentry programs, the goal is that we put people in places and we make sure people have skills so that they can be mobile. So if we are putting a 17-year-old in a job where they will max out at $12 an hour for their life, that is not good job placement. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's a study that just came out about Illinois and recidivism uh, by the Illinois Sentencing Policy Advisory Council. And they note that over the next five years, recidivism will cost Illinois $13 billion. And they highlight that Illinois has a much bigger responsibility to think about real programs like ending barriers to employment. They talk about things like occupational licensure, making sure that people can get licenses who have been incarcerated, uh, which is a problem protecting uh, people who have been incarcerated so that they can't just be fired or making sure that people who have been incarcerated can seal their their records so that they can gain employment and not have the things that they've already served time for be held against them. So I thought it was interesting because we talk about how important uh, it is that reentry is real. It's also a cost saving for the people who like care about cost saving that recidivism rates are really low because it's very costly. 
So the last thing I'll just add to this big picture, uh, what we've seen over the past decade or so, uh, certainly under the Obama administration, uh, has been a decline, not only in the, has been a decline in the crime rate, has been a decline, as this study is showing, in recidivism, um, and also the the beginnings of a decline in the prison population, particularly at the state level. Um, So all three of those things are good news. Um, and are under threat by the policies of the current administration, which seeks to roll back uh, some of the reforms, you know, albeit you know, not as far-reaching as we had hoped, but some of the reforms that have been made, right? And so uh, I think it's important just for that, that big picture, uh, just to know that you know, the numbers do look like things are starting to move in the right direction, obviously uh, not as quickly or on the scale that they need to be, um, but this is definitely not the time to repeal the progress that has been made. So my news is about uh, biking while black. It's about Chicago. So first of all, I didn't even know that in Chicago, it is against the law under the age of 12 to ride a bike on the sidewalk. I didn't even know that was a thing. I guess it I like I can see how people would be like riding bikes on the sidewalk is bad for public like for public safety for pedestrians. But I just never in my mind had imagined that people are legitimately getting citations for that. Like I just, so that was new to me. That again, in Chicago, under the age of 12, you can ride a bike on the sidewalk. Over 12, can't ride a bike on the sidewalk. It's not a crime. It's a civil offense. But they showed that between January 1st and September 22nd of last year, 321 bike tickets were issued in the majority African-American low-income area of Austin. And they compared that to... Uh, compare that to five that were issued in Lincoln Park. The study notes in Austin, which is on the west side, also ranked high for citations issued to motorists parking or standing in bike lanes with 309 tickets in 2005, compared with 30 in Lincoln Park on the north side. What I thought was also sort of fascinating is that bike citations have like shot up recently. So there were 468 total tickets in 2010 to 30 301 citations or tickets for people riding bikes on the sidewalk in 2015 or like bike citations in general seven times higher and it's mostly a majority of black areas where it's happening so they cite one area called north lawndale where the increase was 23 times higher from 8 to 185 so i i point this out because often when we think about like why people are called criminals or why people are getting fined or like why people are like being dragged into court sometimes it's like these random things like i just literally had not even thought about uh, people getting citations for being on the corner and this is a part of the the stuff that we call broken windows policing is that this becomes a mechanism so the police they see you riding on a bike they can actually use that stop on a bike to then search other things they can use it as a form of probable cause and we see this being a gateway into how people are actually ushered into the criminal justice system So that's my news. So this just reminds me of, you know, we talked about LeBron James uh, and the school that he opened. And I remember one of the the big sort of ticket items that people were talking about with the school was that every kid gets a bicycle Uh, and how, you know, getting a bicycle for LeBron was like this experience that allowed him to to ride, you know, out of areas that he didn't feel safe in and into other areas. Um, But, you know, then we learn with this data set that, and this isn't just Chicago, by the way, there's a similar... Uh, story and, and data set that's been made available, I believe it's in Tampa as well, uh, about biking while black. Um, and of course, in New York City, you know, New York City is famous for its broken windows policing. Uh, and one of the sort of broken windows offenses um, that you hear about a lot is bicycling on the sidewalk. 
So in so many cities, just having a bike and riding it around, um, you know, in many cases, if you are black, like you just face a different uh, set of rules where the police will target you and ticket you and fine you for riding on the sidewalk. And they literally don't do any of this in white neighborhoods. Like the, like if you look at the data, it is just, as you said, they're seven times higher in black neighborhoods. Um, so you know, this is something where, one, when we're thinking about how do you support, um, you know, people to get to work, kids to get to school, and all of these things, like, it's important to make those investments on the front end in education and, you know, the built environment. Um, but we also have to make sure that we're focusing on the police and criminal justice reform, because even if you give every kid a bike, you know, if you have police that are predatory uh, in that area, then you've also given kids a ticket, right? And so, we got to think about how to address uh, police violence uh, and criminal justice reform in the context of all of the other things that need to get done. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, it, kids will continue, kids and adults will continue to face these types of obstacles. We've said it before and we'll continue to say it ad nauseum. This is just another reminder that criminality is subjective, that criminality is not an objective phenomenon, that there is no nothing written in stone about what constitutes as criminal, what doesn't constitute as criminal, and that it is often contingent upon the background, uh, the race, the gender, the sexual orientation, the nationality, the accent, the certain other different facets of, of the identity of the person um, who's being charged. And so uh, it's a shame to see this. Uh, can't say that I'm surprised. But again, just a reminder that when we use the term criminal, um, or when we talk about criminality or what constitutes as a crime, um, that these are decisions that people make. And that's all. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hey, so you can go to DeRay.com right now and pre-order my book. It comes out on September 4th. Or you can go get a tour ticket. I'll be in 16 cities. Would love to see you in person talking about the book. Now, here's the thing about the book. It took me a while to write it. I feel like I've been writing for the past 10 years, four years, six years. I feel like I've been writing for a while. And this is the first time that I've written about a host of things. First time I've written about being gay. First time I've written about my family. And the first time really in long form that I've written about the protest. It's my chance to reflect on where we've been and to offer some thoughts about where we go. Both when we think about social justice, but also when we think about what it means to be a citizen, what does it mean to be a whole person, like how do we think about identity, what does it mean to take the truth with us everywhere. These are things that I talk about in the book. Please help me by pre-ordering it now. And remember that a portion of all the proceeds up to 20,000 books actually goes to help the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which, again, if you don't know them, you know their work because they litigated Brown v. Board of Education and were started by Thurgood Marshall. Boom. DeRay.com. Here's my conversation with Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's running to be one of the next senators in Texas. Congressman O'Rourke, it is great to have you today on uh, Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Now, what is it like being in Congress right now? Is it as, is it as uh, sort of wild as we think it is sitting at home, or is it some... What is it like? It's interesting. There are... There, there are absolute um, sublime moments of success when, when something that you have been working on for years, literally, is achieved. And, and you've done so by staying true to the vision, um, by compromising where necessary, where, where, frankly, you have to to get anything done as a Democrat in a Republican-controlled 
institution, by being able to deliver for those who put you into this position of public trust, the fact that I get to serve here at all, um, it's just the highest honor and I'm just the fortunate, the most fortunate person I know to be able to do this. It's it's that um, mixed with um, extraordinary frustration and, and sometimes, frankly, depression that um, this um, vibrant, beautiful, wealthy, powerful country, the inspiration to the rest of, of the world, this amazing idea and experiment um, really seems to be foundering right now and, and is not living up to its ideals and, and could very well lose its way. And, and something that I thought was guaranteed but was um, you know, driven home to me in November 2016 that, that nothing's guaranteed, um, that, that we could lose all of this within an election cycle and that um, the things that we care about um, from healthcare to jobs to immigration to, to so many other things – or, or just the institutions that, that we depend on, this, this idea that we can choose our own government and our own representatives and our own leaders. Um, all of that right now is called into question, not just by this administration, but by the complicity of those who aid and abet its work. And now that could be when it comes to Russian, an, an adversary um, who has sought to undermine our elections and will seek to do so going forward. It could come in the way that we treat children who with their parents have traveled 2,000 miles to come to this country, fleeing the most brutal, the most violent countries on the face of the planet, seeking refuge and asylum, as have countless families for generations before these. Um, Kids who today still are in tent cities in Torneo, Texas, just outside of El Paso, where we're raising our kids, not knowing when or if they were what they will ever see their parents again. All of this is happening right now. And some of these are decisions that one person, Donald Trump, has made. But the consequences for those decisions and the fact that they are now policy of this country are something that all of us carry. So there, there's an extraordinary frustration in being in this position of trust and power, and yet so far not being able to make the, the critical crucial changes that we need to, not just to stop the bad things, some of those that I just described, but also to make good on on the promise, on our ideals, on, on what we tell our kids that, that we're about. So um, it's it's an amazing job. I'm very lucky to have it, but it, it is a, a most frustrating time to be here. Now, before we jump back into some policy stuff, I wanted to know um, a little bit more about you, is that you used to be in a band. Are you still in the band? No. I When I was in... Um, in, in high school and in college, and then for a little while afterward, played punk rock music, um, you know, writing our own songs, um, booking our own tours, putting out our own records, starting our own record label, R- really just doing it ourselves um, to create something that we weren't receiving over the radio that, that wasn't going to be produced for us. And being part of this amazing community of independent musicians all over the, the country, um, so, so a very special time in my life, um, albeit a very long time ago, um, but something that stayed with me. And, <laughs> do you still play at all? What's that? Even at home with your kids? Absolutely. Or, do you still play at all? Like, do yeah, you... I, I um, under the guise of um, celebrating my five-year-old son's birthday, I bought a drum kit, um, which, which <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm on more than than he or his brother or sister are. We have. Um, 
some guitars. Is he the oldest? And, and a PA downstairs. So yeah, I'll, uh, we have three kids and we'll, we just do um, family noise therapy sometimes. We just go downstairs and just rock out or I'll, <laughs> there's a song that they like and we'll, we'll all, that they've heard on the radio and we'll all, um, we'll all try to learn it together. And um, it's, it's great. I, I, I love it. And I wish that I did more of that. Do you have an example of a song that you guys have learned together recently? Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Um, my son Henry heard it on the radio and he was just singing it for the rest of the day. And I said, hey, let's go, let's go learn that. And so he and his sister Molly and I played that song. Um, and he's great. He was, he was singing. He's, he's, got, he's a natural frontman, no fear, um, and, and knows that this is theater. So he, he, gives it, he gives it his all. He acts out the words. It's great. Now, one of the big issues um, that, that the country is dealing with and you are certainly dealing with in Texas is immigration. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are on what the solutions are to immigration. So we know the problems are pretty, are pretty open right now, I would say. Like people have a better understanding in the public conversation around some of the challenges. I don't think that we built up a a language around what the solutions are. So as somebody close to the border conversation, because your state is a border state, um, what does that look like for us? And like, what are your, what's your position on, on immigration? I love that you mentioned the importance of the language around it, because I think the, the rhetoric has contributed to these really dismal results. Um, I, I feel that Democrats especially are, are to blame for this, that, that we sometimes apologize for the border, concede points that aren't worth conceding on on border security, um, and and don't own what, especially those of us who live in Texas or border states, um, live and understand and know better than anyone else, which is the border and our connection to the rest of the world. And immigration and immigrants are are something to be proud of and to celebrate and to capitalize on and build upon. Um, we have the lowest levels of northbound apprehensions on the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border since 1971, the year before I was born. And we know that many of those who are being apprehended right now are kids. And if they're lucky, they're kids who came with their parents seeking asylum, not trying to avoid detection, not running away from Border Patrol agents, but running to those Border Patrol agents seeking asylum and safety and refuge. Um, Democrats have been complicit in policies like sending the military to the border or the 600 miles of walls and fencing and physical barriers that already exist and exist to the lasting shame of this country. I think we need to follow the example of cities like El Paso, the city that I'm from, that I represent in Congress, that Amy and I are raising our kids, Ulysses, Molly, and Henry in. It is one half of the largest binational community in the hemisphere with Ciudad Juarez, three million from these two countries speaking two languages who come together at this one point in the Chihuahuan Desert, joined by the Rio Grande River, and create something far greater than the sum of the people or the parts, including the fact that El Paso is one of, if not the safest cities in the United States of America. And it flies in the face of that rhetoric that you might see from President Trump that uh, Mexican immigrants are rapists or criminals or animals or an infestation, something to be guarded against or walled off. But it also flies in the face of Democrats who say, well, I'm, I'm all for immigration reform, but first let's secure that, that border. I, I want to tell you that, that security comes by following the example of communities like El Paso, where we treat one another with dignity and respect. And in so doing, 
are able to count on the participation of everyone, regardless of their status of documentation, to report a crime or serve as a witness or testify in a trial, demonstrably making us safer. The Gestapo tactics, the the raids, um, the militarization of the border and immigration actually perversely makes us less, not more safe. So, so I think we need to share the facts, um, but I also think we need to share a fierce pride in who we are and where we come from and, and where this country could go if we would only make the most out of all of us. Those could be the millions who are laboring in the shadows, working some of the toughest jobs today. It could be those dreamers, not just the dreamers being taught in classrooms, but um, 20,000 plus dreamers who are teaching in those classrooms today. Um, All of this, um, if we can realize the potential, will be to the shared advantage of this country, not just for immigrants, for for everyone, if, if we allow those immigrants to succeed. So um, I think we have to have an ambitious, aspirational, positive vision on on immigration that makes the most out, out of all those who have chosen us that could go anywhere in the world and, and they chose us and no state more diverse than Texas. So if, if there's a place to lead the way, it's it's got to be us. And I would love our next U.S. senator to be able to do that. And, and what do we do about ICE? I think ICE is part of a much larger series of decisions that we have to make about immigration, about how we treat one another, um, about whether before anything else we are human beings and and if we should be treating one another like human beings. Um, In addition to the 100% family separation policy that existed for a while under the Trump administration, taking kids from 100% of parents who attempted to claim asylum between ports of entry, not done by ICE, uh, implemented through Customs and Border Protection, in addition to the health and human services tent camps that are housing kids who have no idea when they're going to see their parents again, in addition to the ICE raids in communities along the border and communities deep into the interior that have struck terror into the lives of not just families of immigrants, but entire communities. We also have to face the fact that every single year at our border, hundreds of people are dying, not in cages, not in camps, um, not in border patrol stations. They're dying out in the desert as we have pushed asylum seekers, refugees, economic immigrants, those seeking to reunite with their families into the most inhospitable stretches of the U.S.-Mexico border. Each of these are serious issues, none of which will be solved by eliminating a single agency. Um, My preference would be that in the most bipartisan manner possible, we address who we want to be as a country through the prism of those who are choosing to come to those countries and those who've already arrived in this country, um, deciding on a fair path to citizenship, um, deciding the fate of dreamers, not just freeing them from the fear of deportation, but making them U.S. citizens today and not doing it at the expense of their parents the original dreamers, um, making sure that we have the opportunity to absorb the number of people who want to come to this country to work jobs that are unfillable by people who are born in this country, making sure that our asylum laws match our values and and are being implemented. And then lastly, um, making sure that there's real accountability and justice 
for what is going on in these federal law enforcement agencies. Yes, in ICE, but also in Customs and Border Protection, in the Border Patrol, um, in Health and Human Services, um, in Homeland Security Investigations, and, and other federal agencies that right now, to a large degree, can operate with impunity. I was actually able to introduce legislation to begin doing this with a Republican, Steve Pierce of New Mexico, but in part because of the rhetoric um, that, that we agree is so important to this, colleagues from both sides of the aisle say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense, but let us begin on that work after we have, quote unquote, secured the border. Um, if, if we don't start talking about the border in, in a more honest, truthful, humane way, we, we will never get to these reforms necessary. And you are quoted recently as saying that uh, Cruz and others in Texas want people to be afraid of Mexicans. What did you mean by that? I think there's a, a dominant politics of fear in this country right now. Um, and the master at this is, is President Trump. Um, the, the Muslim ban, the wall that Mexico will pay for to keep out Mexican immigrants that he describes as rapists and, and criminals, um, the, the animals that he wants us to be afraid of, the infestation that, that he warns us about, um, the, the press as the enemy of the people. And, and enemy is such a, a strong word. Um, there, there are all these things and, and all these people and all these countries that, that we are supposed to be afraid of. And Senator Cruz has played his part in that politics of fear, whether it is his own proposal to build a 2,000-mile, $30 billion, 30-foot-high wall from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego, California, whether it is his insistence that we should have police patrols in Muslim-majority neighborhoods in the United States as if Muslim Americans somehow inherently pose a threat to other Americans um, it's, it's his commitment to deport dreamers that he made on the campaign trail when he was running for president in 2016 instead of ensuring that those dreamers who I count as every bit as American as anyone else have the ability to give everything they can to make sure that this country is as successful as it could be. I, 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 I feel that he preys upon um, the fears, the most base instincts of his fellow Americans and Texans instead of calling to um, our ambitions, our aspirations, and, and the absolute best in us. And I think right now, regardless of party or any other small difference, that, that's what we want. That's what I want, at least. And that's why Amy and I made the decision more than a year and a half ago to hit the road and just start meeting and being with and listening to our fellow Texans and to find out what it is that we could do together. And I'm, I'm confident that we can do big, aspirational um, ambitious work together. You know, universal health care is an achievement for, for everyone. Jobs with, with function and purpose that pay a living wage, that, that's a real achievement that makes the most of, of everyone. Um, immigration reform is, is an achievement. These are, these are things that we can do that will also unleash potential right now um, that is unable to express itself. Criminal justice reform in that same vein, it's not just about ending um, the largest mass incarceration on the planet. It's the opportunity cost there of those who are behind bars right now who, if allowed to work, to raise their families, to start businesses, to create art, to improve quality of life, there, there would be no stopping 
this country. I, I see the best in us as, as a country. I see the best in one another. There's absolutely nothing to be afraid of right now. And I want to make sure that we as a country act like that. And what about LGBTQ issues in Texas? What, what is, uh, what's the what or like what's your stance on the range of issues that you've been uh, confronted with around supporting on LGBTQ? In Texas, and, and it's hard sometimes to believe this, but you can still discriminate in hiring or in firing solely based on someone's sexual orientation. In Texas, um, our state legislature seriously debated the proposal known as SB6 that um, some school children based on um, being transgender pose an inherent risk or threat to other school children, though, though the facts tell a completely different story. We know transgender kids are far more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators of assault for political gain, trying again to incite fear, to, to scare parents um, about transgender kids, about kids who are different um, for political gain. Um, Texas carries this, this stain. But, but perhaps Texas, better than any other state, um, given what I just described and, and fully understanding the consequences of not treating people equally under the law, could be the state to lead the way so that at a federal, at a national level, uh, for example, in the Equality Act, which I've co-sponsored, we ensure that no state can accept itself from treating every single one of its citizens equally under the law by making sure, again, that we make the most out of all of us and that we are a destination for talent and that we are a place where everyone can thrive in whatever it is that they want to do in their life for themselves, for their families, but for everyone else. I think all of us inherently want to give something back and want to do great for everyone else. And we've got to make sure that we allow people to do that. In Texas right now, that's not the case for far too many people. And so um, this is another instance where I think Texas can defy the stereotype and defy some of the recent politics in our state and defy the statewide elected leadership who I don't think reflect um, the, the diversity, the, the pride, and the promise that, that our state holds. That, that's what I'm finding in this campaign by going to every part of Texas and listening to, to everyone. Um, it's, it's not at all about what we are against it's not, um, it's not about being against another party. It's not who we are afraid of. It's about the big things that we want to accomplish. And it's going to take all of us. And we should allow no small difference at all to, to stand in the way. And, and I think that um, I think not just in winning this election, but in how we deliver to these very high expectations over the next six years, Texas is going to be able to lead the way on these issues nationally. Cool. Thanks so much. Can't wait to uh, see you on Election Day. And thanks, uh, thanks for everything. Grateful for the chance to, to be on. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. <laughs>